Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. We are back after a one-week break for Thanksgiving. I have Monica Denna coming up in a little bit, but first I'm joined by my co-host this week. She's the owner of Avondale Food and Wine in Montrose. We follow her on Instagram at Mary Lee Clarkson. Mary Clarkson, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Eric. Rested. Happy to be here. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, got a couple of closings that I want to discuss with you. Let's start with Public Services Wine and Whiskey, the downtown bar devoted to, as its name says, wine and whiskey. It had been closed since the start of the pandemic. It did a little bit of to-go business, but then Justin Van, who was a partner in the sommelier, announced that it has closed permanently. Uh, he has taken a new job at Nancy's Hustle, and he maintains his position as the wine buyer for Theodore Rex. Mary, I got to say, this one stings a little bit. I was a public services fan. I remember when it opened, you know, this collaboration between Justin Van and Justin Yu. It's beautiful room, the great service, the, you know, and, and just sitting there at that bar and having Justin sort of Justin Van guide you to like, oh, you know, if you pair this sherry finished whiskey with this specific sherry, it's like both of them will taste better, you know, back and forth than if you were drinking either one separately. I always thought that was so cool. I'll remember their anniversary parties, you know, half off every, every booze, you know, every, every different liquor in the, uh, on the back bar. I think that's the first time I got to try Hibiki 21 was, uh, was it half price of public services at one of their anniversary parties? Uh, what about you? I mean, do you have thoughts on on its closure? You know, I love Justin Van. I'm a huge fan of his and of public services. I think this is one of the most beautiful bars in town. I'm sad to see it go, but I think anyone downtown right now, if you are reliant on business travelers and people coming in from the suburbs and you know, coming downtown for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend, that's really hard. Um, I wish it hadn't gone. Uh, I have many memories, especially around the holidays of celebrating there. I was there with he and Justin Yu last year for their industry kind of holiday party. And um, I really hope someone, someone will take this space, but I don't, I don't foresee that happening until we have a have a vaccine. Uh, I'm excited for Justin to have a new chapter. Nancy's is probably the absolute best place he could land. Um, I don't know if this is a forever home for him or until he figures out what's next. I'd be curious to know if if there's another chapter for public services in the future somewhere else, maybe. Right. No, I, I did have that thought that Nancy's was a particularly appropriate place for him because, of course, one of their partners, Sean Jensen, was a manager of public services when it opened and was there for, you know, at least a couple of years before he obviously moved on. So I, in that sense, you know, they're, they have a prior working history and they have similar views on wine, obviously. So I think that's a, it's a, it's a great landing place for him. And of course, Nancy's has such a wonderful collection of talent, uh, both front of the house and back of the house. So, you know, credit to them. But, but I'm with you, you know, I, I will certainly miss public services. I, I would love for it to have 
uh, a new chapter somewhere else. Although I do feel like it was very well suited to that space, but you're right. I mean, downtown is a struggle right now. There's no happy hour crowd because people aren't working in offices, you know, jury trials aren't happening. So that takes out jurors and attorneys and that whole support apparatus, you know, there's no sporting events. So not that, not that it was necessarily a pregame spot for Astros games or Rockets games, but, you know, I think there's always that, that element of just, you know, sort of downtown life. And of course there's no convention. So that hurts too. Uh, no business travel. Yeah. It was just, it's a real struggle down there for, for everyone operating bars and restaurants downtown. And so I, I, I don't think this will be the last, uh, closure we hear about downtown, although obviously I hope for uh, nothing but good things for most people. Um, let's move on to the second closing I just wanted to discuss with you. I, I don't expect that you're going to have a lot to say about King's Beer Garden in Pearland becoming Good Vibes Burgers and Brews. Mm, I mean, I like I like the one that's located in the Heights. I've not been to the one in Pearland. Is it new ownership or are they changing the concepts? Well, so they, so they, which is to say Hans and Philip Sitter, the owners of King's Beer House in the Heights and King's Beer Garden in Pearland are why they own that space, but they have decided to discontinue operating it. They found a a gentleman named Eric Nelson, someone they've known uh, for a while because he was affiliated with number 13, the steakhouse in Galveston to lease that space. He's going to open the new uh, burgers, comfort food, beer concept in the King's beer garden space. I mean, you know, it's had Philip on the show a couple of times and he talked about starting that restaurant as a car wash. And then they started grilling up bratwurst and then they found out they had to have a, you have to have a food and beverage permit to do that. And, you know, slowly the car wash transformed into a restaurant. It became a a destination. And obviously they've since grown. There's now two, there's a King's beer house in league city and the King's beer house, uh, technically not in the Heights. It's kind of right on that border of Lazy Brook, Timber Grove and Shady Acres. And I'll let, I'll let somebody who's much more fussy about the geography tell me exactly which one of those neighborhoods is, is where, you know, gets to claim credit for uh, King's Beer House. Um, but, you know, it was this, it's this wonderful immigrant success story, you know, built around like schnitzel and bratwurst and, and really great German beer and fantastic service and just making people feel like they're a part of something. And, you know, I, I mean, good luck to Eric Nelson. Obviously I don't, I don't have anything ill to say about good vibes, but uh, definitely the end of an era for Kings as, as they kind of continue to grow and evolve and, and, you know, just, uh, I don't know. It's not, it's not so much that it bumps me out exactly, but it's just, it's the end of an era for sure. Absolutely. And then a couple of quick openings to go over King Ranch, Texas kitchen. The new concept from Landry's is now open in the former Willie G space on post Oak, just North of San Felipe. This is uh, Carlos Rodriguez, who was the longtime executive chef of Vic and Anthony's is leading the kitchen for this uh, steaks, tacos, sandwiches, you know, all kinds of crazy comfort food in a ranch style setting. That's supposed to be good. A friend of mine, a friend of mine has actually been here and said really nice things about it. Mary, I know I've talked about this on the show before. I don't remember if you were the co-host when we discussed I this. I was. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, when are we going to, so let me put it to you like this. 
Are you excited about trying this? And if so, what are we going? I'm always excited to try something new. Um, when are we going? I don't know, Eric. When when are we going? Um, I'd be curious as to what their take is. We've we've definitely tried some of Tillman's uh, steak concepts before, most notably Mastro's. Um, so I'm curious to see if it's a Mastro's uh, Vic and Anthony's hybrid vibe, if it's a little more casual, but it's in post oak. So I, I imagine it's pretty upscale. Uh, yeah, I think it's kind of that like Texas upscale, you know, you can wear your, you can wear jeans and boots, but of course, you know, your boots are probably, you know, four figures and your jeans are probably couple hundred bucks, you know, so they don't that, you know, the belt buckle and the belt buckle may cost more than either one of them. So, you know, it's got that kind of fancy ranch vibe. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, like I said, I've, I've heard a couple of good things from people. I have not made it over there, but I am eager to try it. Uh, and then I topic uh, we'll call this two B uh, Mazraf's has reopened. Speaking of post Oak, they relocated to, a new development at Bunker Hill and I-10 in the Memorial area. Um, a fresh start for them, a little more casual, a smaller footprint, updated menu with new presentations. And, you know, they've tweaked the ingredients a little bit. They're just trying to get a little younger. Um, but still like that kind of refined European influenced, you know, steaks, chops, seafood, you know, that's still very much, uh, very much on brand for them. I don't know. What do you think? Mazraf's? Are you intrigued? You know, I, I've definitely gone to their old former location. I think it was probably time for a revamp. They probably got a good developer deal that helped facilitate this move and build out of a new space. I think this space will do really well long-term. If you're looking at a 10 year time horizon, I think they'll do great being in the energy energy corridor adjacent area especially for lunch business. Um, there's not a lot out there that fits this kind of um, older upscale vibe. Um, as much as you say that they're trying to go younger and everything else, it's a known entity. And to be out in the energy corridor, I think they will get that business from those, from those businesses during the daytime and from those families that live nearby in the evenings. Right. Of course, you know, so much of their business is uh, dependent on expense accounts and that's very limited right now. So it's a, a little bit of a slow start, especially during the week for them. But, you know, I talked to Russell Masraf pretty extensively and they feel he feels pretty confident about their prospects once everything sort of gets settled in. But yeah, definitely an interesting change for them. And uh, I will be checking that out this week with uh, Michael Fulmer, who's a regular presence on this show. I'm looking forward to that and seeing what they're all about. All right. Oh, one more. Yes, the Bearded Baker, new cookie shop in the Heights. Uh, we've talked about this a couple of times indirectly. Jonathan Horowitz was a, a consultant for that project, and uh, Monica Dana, uh, on behalf of Revive Development, that's, uh, that's the landlord. So I have a feeling we'll be talking about that with her uh, in a little bit, but Alan Hersig is the Bearded Baker. He was a uh, had a good run on one of those Food Network uh, cookie decorating shows. And uh, and he's, he's really quite talented. It's a, it's a cute little shop in the Heights. Um, when I went to interview him, he put my face on a cookie based on the logo for this podcast. I was very flattered. Um, the cookies are sort of uh, 
obviously sweet, you know, not, not like cleanly. So, but definitely sweet, um, very elaborately decorated and, uh, and really nice. So it's a, it's a nice addition to the Heights. I think the cookie with this needs to stay on the menu along with maybe a couple of other food writers in town and see which one sells the best. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to say about that. All right. Topic number three. Congratulations to celebrity chef David Chang. He is the first ever celebrity to win the million dollar prize on who wants to be a millionaire. And that money is being donated to the Southern Smoke Foundation, the charity Chris Shepard started that gives cash assistance to restaurant industry workers in crisis. Mary, how cool is this? This is pretty awesome. I mean, it takes it takes a lot for me to be like, wow, but this is a this is a wow moment for David Chang, for Southern Smoke, for Chris Shepard, for Lindsey Brown, for our city. Um, so much work needs to be done to save our industry. Um, Bobby Stuckey in Colorado has spoken about this in great deal, as well as a lot of our local people here. Um, this is amazing and hopefully it will spur new legislation, new legislation, uh, in the new term to help protect restaurant workers, restaurants, bars, our, our whole entire industry. If we want it, if we want it to resemble anything like it does or did before we went into this pandemic, uh, way to go, David Chang. Like this is amazing. It brings a spotlight onto our industry when we are in desperate need of help. Right. And I, I think, you know, in Houston, we, we haven't locked down again. We haven't shut down. Restaurants are still operating 75% capacity, but of course, all over the country, you know, indoor dining is being closed or even in California restaurants are getting put back to uh, to go only service, no dine-in at all. And, you know, the, the people who are going to be affected by that are restaurant workers. There's not extended unemployment as of right now, you know, those $1,200, um, those $1,200 checks we all got uh, from the government in the, in the spring, like who knows if we'll get another round of those. And, and that means that people are going to need help. I mean, this is, this is a really tough time of year and Southern smoke is maybe uniquely positioned to offer direct cash assistance to people who are really struggling. So, you know, that million dollars is going to go, uh, it's going to help a lot of people and uh, and the publicity from being the first person to win the million dollars, you know, that will certainly drive a lot more interest in Southern smoke and, and expose it to people in a way that it, it certainly hasn't been before. So uh, yeah, huge credit to David Chang and congratulations to Chris Shepard and Catherine Lott, their executive director and, and Lindsay Brown on, uh, on leading that organization and, and being in a position to, to distribute those funds. Uh, Mary, let me just ask you, did you watch the episode? I have not watched the episode. I am going to watch it. I don't, uh, you know this, I don't watch a lot of TV in general, so I'm going to. Right, Have you? but have you seen the clip of the final question? <laughs> no, I think I read the clip uh, about the White House, correct? That's right, the first president to have electricity in the White House. Did you, did you, have, did you have any idea that it was Benjamin Harrison and, and more importantly, did you know that Benjamin Harrison is a U.S. president? Uh, 
let's just be, let's keep it real, real. I didn't even know that was a U.S. president, and I was a government and economics major, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say I love game shows. I love trivia. I I certainly did not know that Benjamin Harrison was the the first president to have electricity in the White House. I got it down to Harrison or Chester Arthur. I I dismissed uh, Ulysses Grant and... uh, Andrew Johnson is is not the right answer, but I I flat out don't know that I would have had the uh, the courage to pick one and go with it because of course if you if you're wrong you go from five hundred thousand dollars back down to thirty two thousand dollars losing four hundred sixty eight thousand oh, dollars. My God, uh, I would phone a friend. I would be phoning a friend. He did. He did. So Mina Kimes, the ESPN uh, broadcaster, was David Chang's phone a friend. She uh, suggested he pick Harrison. And of course, then it was up to David Chang to, to make the final call. But yeah, just a, just a stunning uh, game show moment as someone who loves game shows and, and it's nice to have a Houston tie. Very cool. I'm excited. I'm excited for everybody involved. Way to go, David Chang. That's pretty awesome. I did used to watch uh, the show a lot when I was younger, but what an exciting moment uh, for our city and our industry. All right, Mary, that does it for our news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. So Mary, for our restaurants of the week, I want to start by revisiting Blue Dorn. Now, obviously we've talked about this place pretty extensively uh, when it first opened, Matt Harris and Felice Sloan came on. We broke it down probably for a good 10, 15 minutes. But, you know, Blue Dorn has now been open for a couple of months. The menu has evolved from kind of a late summer into a fall winter vibe. You know, some of the, you know, a lot of the proteins are the same, but their preparations have changed. You know, for example, the the foie gras terrine is now uh, a foie gras torchon served within, you know, an apple donut you know, and, and there's uh, just changes all up and down the menu. Uh, you and I had a really elegant dinner there a couple of weeks ago with a friend of ours who was visiting from out of town. And it was your kind of first like real, like multi-course sit down, be spoiled uh, Blue Dorn experience. So you and I have, have been to most of what I consider to be the best new restaurants of 2020 together. We've been to Ostia, we've been to Musifer. We've been to Turner's. Where does where does Blue Dorn kind of fit for you among those restaurants? You know, it definitely fits amongst them. Um, I think they're comparable for sure. Um, I think the pedigree of the chef sets sets it apart um, from the others. I would definitely say his experiences cooking in New York. Um, I thought that the food was very good, very elegant, and probably what his type of diner is looking forward, right? Most of the food's very safe. It's uh, it's very well executed, but there aren't a lot of surprises on the menu. Uh, the execution's very, very good, and I think that's probably what a lot of his customers are looking for, upscale, refined, good ingredients, executed well, and a very beautiful setting and atmosphere. 
Yeah. The other reason I, I wanted to bring this up with you is that, you know, not not this year, but but in prior years, you've gone to New York, you know, a couple of times a year and you you certainly have your your favorite restaurants. But I, I know that you uh, I know that you've been to Cafe Baloo, certainly. Yes. And so how do you think Blue Dorn kind of holds up to like Aaron's pedigree and, and kind of his experience working in New York? Like, could this restaurant you know, hang in NYC? I, I travel often for, for work, both in this industry and my other uh, fields as well. And I always look forward to going to New York and how I kind of divide my New York trips is old and new. So I go to my, my old favorites and then I mix in a few new restaurants. I think his restaurant would hold up in New York um, in a, in a normal dining, you know, situation, not COVID obviously. Um, his foods, his food is classic French. My partner's a French chef. I am familiar with this style of cooking. It's been in my life for a very long time. Um, my hope is that Houston embraces French um, techniques and New York school chefs um, more than they have before. I am intimately familiar with French is not always in favor in Houston. I think it kind of ebbs and flows when it is or is not in favor. And I just think he will have to listen to his audience and adapt over time, you know, kind of make the menu a little bit of Texas influence with his New York skill set. He's very talented. The food is beautifully plated. And I think, I think this restaurant will, will do well. Um, it is kind of a special occasion place for some people given the price points. Um, and I think right now there's a lot of reason to celebrate in Houston. If, if you're going to go out right now, you want, you want to be taken care of. And, and this restaurant definitely does that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually glad that you said that because I, I do think that there is a certain joy uh, and enthusiasm both from the staff and the way that they sort of serve and present the dishes and also like in the dining room from the people who are sitting there, that people are excited to be there. They're having a good time. I mean, they're spending, you know, 60 something dollars on that lobster pot pie. They're spending, you know, they're getting caviar and uni on their, on their oysters. They're opening big bottles of wine there. You know, we, we opted for, uh, we opted for uh, a long bone ribeye, you know, uh, Blue Dorn is shaving white truffles over a couple of different dishes. And, and we definitely saw the truffles like being walked around the dining room and shaved onto people's food. So just from, yeah, just from like an emotional perspective, I think it feels really good to dine there. It feels like an occasion and we haven't had a lot of happy occasions this year. And, and even sort of beyond the food, which I agree with you is, is very carefully prepared, very delicious. I'm very happy to eat there. Um, but that energy is what really makes it such a special place. It does. And it's it's beautifully decorated, designed inside. And it's nice that it, this upscale restaurant does have a patio area. A lot of these very high-end restaurants don't have an outdoor seating component. So as we tread carefully through the next few months, I think that will really help this place for the older couple that wants to go out but won't sit inside 
um, this and BCN are two of the, you know, higher end restaurants I think of that have that outdoor seating component. If you're going to spend $200 plus a person, which we did, you know, it's got to be memorable. And, and this place hits those notes. Absolutely. All right. And then just briefly, I do want to note that how to survive on land and sea, the wine bar in the East end has a new pizza pop-up Angie's pizzas. Angelo Emiliani is the chef. He is a native Houstonian who went to LA for a while. He was back in town while he was in LA. He worked for Chris Bianco, who is arguably uh, the most famous, most celebrated, most accomplished pizza chef in America. So, uh, Angelo brings all of those uh, experiences and techniques to Angie's Pizza. I don't know, Mary, what did you think of the pizza that we tried at How to Survive on Land and Sea? This pizza is bringing the heat. It is so good. Um, I very rarely geek out about pizza just because I think our city doesn't have enough good options. And I'm bougie and I'm just fully going to admit it. And DeMarco is my go-to pizza spot. (laughs) But this pizza, the ingredients, the dough, the care of this pizza is so great. I had a a, a persimmon uh, pizza the first time I went there and uh, it was beautiful. But the classics, the margarita, the pepperoni are doing great as well. Um, I'm so excited our city has a pizza joint like this right now. Right. I mean, I went and I, I had the persimmon pizza um, and the, the margarita is great. It's got the super vibrant tomato sauce. He's sourcing, you know, locally made uh, mozzarella from another part of Texas. And then I went back and he was doing this, uh, this pizza with prosciutto. And usually when there's prosciutto on a pizza, it's added after baking but he actually cooks the prosciutto and it gets this almost like bacon kind of crispiness. Um, it's wonderful texture. And, you know, just for that, right. Just for being willing to sort of break with traditional Italian convention, put a little heat to the prosciutto and kind of see what happens. I mean, I, you know, if you like pizza, right. For, for people who like pizza, this is, this is worth seeking out. And, uh, you know, we both are, are friends with Mike Sammons, the owner of How to Survive. You know, he's very excited about um, the potential for this collaboration. And, and you know, hopefully it evolves into something more permanent than just uh, than cooking on a mobile oven, you know, on the sidewalk next to the restaurant. Yes, I don't want to give anything away, but I think that is the hope that this becomes a more permanent fixture. And... I also think it's awesome for this neighborhood because there's not a lot of dining options over here, to be honest. Same with Mike having How to Survive and Wine Shop, Wine Bar um, as well, and Giant Leap having the coffee there. So I think this will be a nice destination for people to get what they want out of it, whether it be coffee, wine, or awesome pizza. Absolutely. All right, Mary, that does it for our Restaurants of the Week. Thank you very much. You are welcome, Eric. Oh, before you get out of here, you've got something really cool happening at Avondale on Saturday. Uh, Yes, uh, this coming Sunday. Um, Sunday. I have 
Sunday, Sunday, pick the right day. Sunday, December 6th, uh, we are doing a scaled down version of our annual holiday market. So we will have our vendors outside. Uh, we'll be tasting through about two dozen wines um, from five distributors. And it's a really nice opportunity for you to buy some gifts or wines for your Christmas or New Year's table, uh, Hanukkah table. It's going to be um, relaxed price points. Most of the bottles are 15 to $30 a bottle. And you'll get to know um, in great detail a little bit more about these wines, where they come from and how they're produced. So come and support a small business. It'll be Sunday from one to four. Wonderful. All right, Mary, thank you very much. You're welcome. Adios, Eric. All right. And I'll be right back with Monica Dana. I am joined this week by Monica Dana. She is the Director of Leasing and Marketing for Revive Development, which has properties all over the Heights and adjacent neighborhoods. We follow her on Instagram at Cosmopolitician. Monica, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. You know, we, um, we haven't really talked a lot about kind of the real estate angle of the restaurant world, uh, certainly in a long time, but we've talked about a lot of your various tenants uh, over the three years of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into that, let me just let me just start with you. How does someone become the director of leasing and development for uh, a real estate firm? And and I say that knowing that, like, I remember, you know, ten years ago when when we were all sort of first getting on Twitter. Yep. You were like one of those early people to like really cultivate a, a local <laughs> following. You you were you were really hip to that trend. Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting <clears throat> generationally and I can say that cuz I believe you and I are close to the same age. You know, I've always thought that we've had, you know, one foot in this kind of baby boomer C-suite executive world and then one foot in the millennial world. You know, we're clearly Gen Xers. And I kind of felt like maybe, you know, 12, 15 years ago, really, when social media was taking off, our generation, these kind of late Gen Xers really had a lot to offer to those, you know, those baby boomers that were looking for marketing and social media technology strategy, but then also kind of understood this millennial Twitter, Instagram world. So, you know, early on, I did kind of have, you know, both feet and being in, I was in oil and gas, actually, you know, my first career, I say. Um, And, you know, I just really kind of found that sweet spot between those two generations in the workplace, and really worked with a lot of businesses, their very first um, social media strategies. I mean, I started the St. Arnold Twitter account, if you can believe it. I started the Houston Dynamo Twitter account, which these were at the time kind of revolutionary business marketing strategies, right? This Twitter thing was kind of this, a kid thing, right? It started off as a, as a kind of personal thing. So anyway, I did that for a while. I think you and I met when I was working at the Black Sheep Agency. Uh, I was doing some PR and marketing for them about six years ago and then kind of made my way into 
technology software marketing for a couple of years and a software startup. And then the way that I got to revive really is a neighborhood story. I uh, grew up in the Garden Oaks, uh, Oak Forest area, as you know, born and raised, been here almost 42 years on and off. And um, my cousin, who is the founder of Revive, um, had just closed on a, a property here in the Garden Oaks area and, you know, knew I lived in the neighborhood for a while, knew I was doing marketing. So we were doing some, you know, consulting together and <clears throat> I was working for a software company at the time. And he just kind of approached me and said, hey, you know, you know, a lot of people in, 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 in hospitality, you know, people in the neighborhood. I like that cross section of, of knowledge. And um, would you want to join my team? So, um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got to where I am now. I kind of specialize in, you know, inner loop neighborhoods, um, hospitality. About 80% of our tenants right now are restaurants, which I know, you know, we've been talking a lot about during the pandemic and how those have fared. So that's kind of how I got here. Yeah. And, and let's talk about Revive specifically, because I, even people who don't, maybe know that name, certainly know some of your tenants. Mm-hmm. Um, just off the top of my head, uh, Squabble, mm-hmm. uh, Miko's Hot Chicken, uh, the Bearded Baker, Hondo, and then you guys have opened the new Stomping Grounds development uh, north of 610. That's, uh, that's the new location of Fat Cat Creamery and uh, Becca Cakes. Yep, yep. Uh, what else? We've got um, up in Oak Forest, or actually the Stopping Grounds that you mentioned is our sixth project up here. Um, we opened the uh, southwest corner of LM 34th, where BB's is, Aladdin's second location, came up there. They opened about three years ago. And then uh, various other local pokey up there and a couple of new concepts that we're putting in that space too. So that was kind of our, our first big jaunt outside of the Heights. Um, you know, my cousin Brian Dana, who, like I said, founded Revive, really got his start in the Heights. Um, he developed all of White Oak between uh, Onion Creek and Fitzgerald. So that strip where um, Barnaby's was and um, Tacos a Go-Go. So that was kind of his first foray into the Heights. His, his actually first property to be closed on the Heights was the Lola building. So that's us to 11th and Yale. Um, our office is on 11th Street. We love 11th Street. Um, as you mentioned, the Bearded Baker's on 11th as well. So yeah, so Squabble, we've you know added our portfolio in the last couple of years, which we were really excited about. The Ritual on Studemont, um, that's another a long-term property of ours. And again, you know, starting off in the Heights and then you know moving north into these Garden Oaks, Oak Forest neighborhoods that that I know pretty well. I think a lot of the city is still kind of seeing how underserved these. You know, I, I I refer to them as kind of inner city neighborhoods, even though they're not inside the loop. I know a lot of people that live up here in Garden Oaks and Oak Forest, including myself, we're used to driving into the Heights and Montrose for quality, you know, restaurant options. And and we're hoping to change that. You know, we're hoping to be able to bring those very similar demographics that we have in the Heights and Montrose um, that exist in Oak Forest and Garden Oaks. They just maybe live a little bit further outside the loop to get a little bit more land, maybe have that second or third kid and just want to spread out a little bit, but still very urban minded consumer that's looking for those same restaurants that, you know, we have in, in the Heights and Montrose. Right. I think they're, you know, it, especially over the last say five years, Oak Forest Garden Oaks are becoming more like some of the other neighborhoods that are just outside the loop, whether that's, you know, Tanglewood, Briar Grove, Meyerland, Bel Air, what have you, where, you know, increasingly like very family oriented, relatively affluent, you know, these are, these are people with 
you know, a disposable income and, and, and an interest in dining uh, both as like, you know, kind of day to day, you know, I don't feel like cooking for the kids after school in a job kind of situation. And also yeah. like a little more elevated kind of date night, you know, fancier kind of options. Yeah. And I think too, like as a parent, I've kind of evolved this thinking as well. Um, you know, as I think, you know, urban and even suburban parents, you know, over the past 10 to 15 years, there's just been this kind of trend and whether it's a trend or just an evolution of exposing your children to more than McDonald's, more than Chick-fil-A, you know, really having them understand global cuisine and, and doesn't have to be in a stuffy, uptight, um, fancy environment, you know, this casual, um, high level of, of cuisine, right. That we can, we can't take our kids to cultivare on our, you know, Wednesday night. Um, you know, we want to be able to have quality food and have quality drinks, but then also have a place for our kids that, you know, can, it can maybe run around a little bit or, um, you know, or sit still <laughs> if they're good kids uh, and really have a, a good meal. Um, I think that most of the uh, restaurants we've seen come into the Oak Forest Garden Oaks neighborhood, like Union Kitchen was one of the first, you know, Paul Miller was, you know, one of those pioneers that I feel like really saw the, um, the, the opportunity that existed here and offering that you know, that, that elevated cuisine, but also that's in a family-friendly environment with a patio, uh, which is, you know, much of what we're trying to do at the stomping grounds. There's a 8,000 square foot green space, which is almost twice as big as a city center. And, you know, each of the buildings has a huge patio. So the idea being that, you know, kids can kind of run around and, you know, can enjoy themselves and parents can have a piece of pizza or sushi um, or Mexican food. Uh, have ice cream cones. So, you know, we're, we're really trying to, uh, to really pay attention to those, uh, you know, opportunities that the neighborhood is bringing to us. I being living in the neighborhood, you know, I'm very fortunate to um, hear what people are saying. Quite literally, people knock on my door and say, you know what we need over here? I mean, I hear that weekly, which is great. And I take that as feedback and um, try to really listen to what the neighborhood's asking for. Well, yeah, that's, that's a good kind of jumping off point. So let's talk about stomping grounds because, you know, it's just kind of getting to the point where things are starting to open, you know, Becca cakes opened uh, a few months ago. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's terrible. Fat cat <laughs> opened a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, Kevin Floyd just announced that he's going to be bringing shoot the moon there. Uh, hopefully sometime in 2021. Mm -hmm. Um Kind of what else are you are you working on, or uh, you know, I guess I guess we should say that that there had been some thought that maybe Camerata was going to expand, and and that kind of fell through for you. But uh, what are what else are you kind of looking at um, to kind of round that out, and and kind of how would you describe that property maybe for people who who haven't had a chance to to drive past it on uh, on thirty fourth. Yeah, yeah, we've got about 25,000 square feet of restaurant and retail over there. Um, we do have a second floor that we are creating into a actually day spa concept that will serve kind of the neighborhood in those capacities. Um, so we're excited about that. We do have a retail section of the development, which you mentioned Becca Cakes, which is a, you know, she's was most famous kind of for a, her wedding cakes and now has a storefront as well. Um, she does some, some awesome macarons and cupcakes. We've got Threadfair, which is a kids boutique, sort of elevated kids boutique. Again, um, those operators 
live in the neighborhood. A lot of our tenants in the Oak Forest Garden Oaks neighborhood um, are residents as well. They kind of see the opportunity there um, as, as, as homeowners and want to bring their businesses there. She was operating a memorial for, for 10 years and kind of moved over to the stomping grounds once we opened. Um, and then we've got a hair salon flow, which is again, um, Oak Forest residents, they're over on Ellen now, they're moving into our building. So that kind of rounds out our retail. Um, for restaurants, you mentioned we've got Fat Cat opening. Uh, they opened two, three weeks ago. Um, so she's doing great over there on the lawn. And then we have, which is really, <clears throat> we're excited about is, you know, Matt Toomey, formerly a Boomtown Coffee. He's going to be doing his Little Dreamer concept out of a 20 by 8 foot uh, kiosk, a shipping container that we've got set right there on the green space. Uh, three of the sides kind of flip up and he'll sort of ser sort of service that lawn area um, as more like a concessionaire with beverages, coffees, teas. So we're really excited about him. Um, you mentioned Shoot the Moon. We're excited about Kevin's uh, concept, you know, second second one of those. His first one's over in Spring Branch and then Kevin moving in there. And then we've got two other leases that are signed that we haven't announced yet, hopefully soon. Um, and then we do have some space left. As far as kind of what we're looking to round it out, you know, when we first approach a project like this from a real estate perspective, especially from someone who lives in the neighborhood, we always start with kind of a merchandising plan. And, you know, we look at what does the neighborhood need? Um, not necessarily what we want as developers, but what does the neighborhood need? What are they lacking? What do they not have over here? You know, so we start to start off in these categories, you know, Mexican, Asian, maybe we need sushi date night spot. We need a, a dessert spot. Um, and we really just kind of go from there. We, we try to pick the best in class operators. Um, from each one of those categories. You know, a lot of our leasing is done. We, we refer to it as curation. Um, essentially, we, you know, once we get something under under contract, we'll, um, you know, call people that we know in the neighborhood that may be looking. We'll call some, you know, tenants that we know are looking for other locations that are expanding. That happened with Fat Cat Creamery. You know, we are we her landlord at her first center on 19th, uh, 19th and Shepherd. And knew her business model was to expand, you know, outside of her small thousand square feet in heights. Um, and what we've done for her, or what she's done, I should say, what the opportunity we've given her is one of the buildings that we have in the stomping grounds is an old industrial building. It's about 60 years old. And, you know, we are, we, when we look for real estate, we are looking for um, you know, sites with existing structures that we can reuse, that we can rehab, that we can remodel, obviously revive. Um, that's what we do. This this particular building is about 60, 60 years old. And the peak of it, it's an A-frame at, at the top of the roof. And it's 30 feet to the peak, which allows for a retail space to do a mezzanine. So what Batcat's done is created a commissary up on the top um, floor. And why that's important as a retail strategy in some of these, you know, urban, more dense areas where, you know, real estate taxes are, are on the rise and which makes for, you know, increasing rents in these areas that allowed her to take a small footprint downstairs um, and then utilize the upstairs mezzanine space for that production area. So now she could go into, you know, another maybe high dollar neighborhood, Rice Village or River Oaks a Memorial and take a very small space because she's got this commissary from which to kind of use as a hub um, for that production. So a couple other tenants are doing that. Shoot the Moon's also doing a mezzanine. Um, we've talked to various um, bakeries that have, have thought about doing the same. 
um, is really utilizing the, the ceiling heights and those, you know, those older buildings that they can use for, um, you know, in order to kind of make their economics work a little bit better. I guess let's shift gears slightly. Um, you know, I think we, we hear sort of colloquially um, or we just sort of know intuitively that, you know, restaurants operating at, at 50% capacity obviously don't make the same amount of money that they did before the pandemic when they were operating at 100% of capacity. Um, and certainly, you know, they negotiate lease rates with landlords like Revive that are based on, you know, turning a certain number, you know, serving a certain number of people at a certain uh, price per person. So, sure. so what are you kind of doing to help these tenants that are um, obviously not making the money that they thought they were and so maybe not able to pay the rent that you negotiated with them that they expected to be able to pay? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a global pandemic. This is the, this is the first time for most of us, <laughs> arguably all of us, for going through this. So, you know, when the pandemic first hit in you know, late March, or it really kind of hit us uh, early April, the first thing we did um, was call all of our tenants. Uh, we have about 35 to 40 tenants. And between Brian and I, we got on the phone with every single tenant, probably within seven days, within a week, to really just kind of assess um how people were feeling about things. Um, this was probably the first week in April, you know, restaurants were probably just shutting down. I forget the time frame at this point. Um, the first week, I guess the first, the middle of March is when we went to, to go only. And over the weekend, you know, Brian and I met and met with our team and what can we do immediately to kind of help them out? Um, and one of the things we did immediately was we reached out to our printer, got 20 to go only signs printed, right? So we got them printed to go stops, throw them all over our tenants, dropped them off. Obviously they're grateful for that. Um, the next week, what can we do now? And um, we met with our team, we put together, I think you remember this, Eric, I think you guys covered it, um, the bingo card. So we put all of our tenants on a bingo card. Again, just just um, encouraging our our patrons to, you know, remember these neighborhood restaurants, right? When you've got an opportunity to support them through to go, how can we encourage them to do this? Um, and then we got, like I said, every, at the beginning of every month, you know, PPP was coming out and, and, and we created this almost like a phone chain. So we call our tenants. And then as we learned things, a lot of the tenants were calling their bankers and trying to figure out what they could do. Did they qualify for the PPP? What's the disaster loan information? And we would have a conversation and then we would, you know, pass that along to the next tenant. This is what we heard. You know, can we connect you with one of our bankers? So initially in the pandemic, that's what it was a lot. It was a lot of information sharing. We were sending an email out to all 40 tenants, probably every three days I was sending on financial information, you know, anything about PPP I could find, helpful articles. I had my, uh, one of our group assistants running, you know, Twitter and Instagram accounts for our tenants, you know, anything to kind of help them get an edge on that to go market, right? So like staying kind of ahead of the curve. And so from that perspective, I would say we contributed as a, as a marketing strategy, um, as a marketing resource to tenants. And then what we did, you know, initially when the when the pandemic hit, we were having to call bankers too. You know, clearly we have, you know, mortgages on, on properties as well. It's not like, you know, we're just sitting back collecting, uh, <laughs> you know, rent right. Checks, you, you so. mean, you're, you mean you're not, you're not sitting on a giant pile of cash to buy all these properties. Outright? I, I know that's a common misconception, but <laughs> I would love that. Um, no. So, you know, we had to call our 
you know, financial resources and two, and, you know, what are they offering? So essentially every property we have is, is a different, you know, a different deal. And we would just talk to kind of our bankers. What can, you know, what can they do for us? How can we pass that along to our tenants? And then as our tenants started applying and getting awarded PPP, you know, some of that sort of worked itself out. I, I will say being in the middle of two neighborhoods, I mean, every single one of our properties, 100% of our properties are in the Heights or Oak Forest and Garden Oaks, uh, surrounded by rooftops. And I will say we have not lost one tenant this entire year due to COVID. Uh, we had a turnover with one tenant that had told us before COVID hit that they were leaving. But within this, um, what is this, eight months we're in this now, um, we have not lost one restaurant tenant. And we really do believe, and Eric, you and I have talked about this before, we really believe that being in these neighborhoods ha has benefited to these restaurant tenants more so than if they were in the energy corridor, or obviously downtown, which is, you know, a sad story to see, you know, some of those restaurants downtown where, you know, they were guaranteed these, these workers for you know, every single day, Monday through Friday, and they're just not there. So I feel like our tenants have been, we have two tenants that I know of personally that had a better, May 2020 than they had in May 2019, which just blows my mind um, with the to-go business. And, and one of the things that we've kind of gleaned from that situation, and, and you're probably seeing it too, as you're reporting on new restaurants that are opening, this kind of to-go counter service trend is, is sort of here to stay, we believe. You know, this elevated order at the counter or make it accessible to be to-go really changes the the food concept of what's food that we can make that's good in dining, but also is going to carry out in a to-go fashion, right? Because there's just some food that once it leaves that, you know, there are some restaurants and I'm sure you've seen this too. They just won't do it to go. These items are not available for to-go menu because we realize as soon as they leave our our doors, the quality is not going to be assured. So, you know, yeah, we're beef, seeing beef that tartare too. does not hold up well in DoorDash. <laughs> uh, you know, not really feasible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can't be done. So, um, so yeah, so you know, we we stay in very close contact with our tenants. I mean, monthly, monthly. I mean, this is not even just since the pandemic. I mean, we are personal friends with a lot of a lot of our tenants, especially in this this neighborhood. You know, me living in Oak Forest Garden Oaks. You know, I think that, and even more so, Brian lives in the Heights. So a lot of the tenants are our friends. So, you know, we want to know the information they're getting. What are their sales like? Are there things that are helping? Do we need to clear the parking lot out and put some tables out there? Do we need to create a, you know, to-go only drop-off line? So these were the conversations that we were having early on in the in the pandemic is, is really how do we, number one, triage, right? So how do you help right now? How do you stop the bleeding um, how do you, how can we do right now? So that was kind of, I would say, you know, April, May-ish. And then the summer started coming, um, you know, it felt good for a while. Everybody kind of opened up a little bit and then numbers hit. So, you know, I think, you know, we, we continue to stay in close contact with tenants. You know, we always will. Um, you know, I feel like the kind of landlord that we are, tenants feel like we're someone that they can come to and kind of share in ideas. I mean, Brian's really great about brainstorming different layouts or, you know, I, again, I had, we had our office assistant creating um, Instagram stories for some of our tenants, you know, Tasty Tuesday. So, you know, these are some of the ways that we're hoping to help, you know, this year. Well, let me just ask you, I mean, long-term, mm -hmm. are you, are you seeing people who are maybe looking to lease space, like for a new concept, kind of changing their 
requirements in terms of the, the amount of space that they need because they think they're going to be maybe more oriented to go or they, they want a bigger patio or they, they don't want as much interior seating. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I will say, obviously, for the first couple of months, you know, from March until June or so, not a ton of leasing activity going on. Obviously, notably so people were waiting to see what was going to happen. But, you know, we signed four or five leases this summer. And probably four of those were were leases we already had in progress. So they just kind of picked back up and continued. So, you know, the capital was already there. They were already planning on being somewhere. But, you know, we have seen activity pick up this fall. And and absolutely, I mean, we've at the patio space is probably the biggest thing. You know, I mentioned kind of to go drive through. You've probably seen a lot of that too. We signed Common Bond uh, in Garden Oaks right on the corner of 34th and, and Shepherd. Uh, this summer. And absolutely, I mean, drive through was part of their concept, uh, even more so now with the pandemic. You know, I think with the pandemic and also being in a neighborhood that is known for families, um, you, you're a parent in the car with two kids and two car seats. It's a bitch to get out of the car. <laughs> um, so right. I'll tell you, you know, probably we've got two drive throughs actually that buildings are going in on LN 34th. We've got one on the hard corner um, and then a coffee shop too, that again, it was deal killer for them. Look, we need a drive through. And if we don't, we're not going to go in. So, you know, we were able to kind of work those things out, but absolutely patio space too. You know, when we, when the pandemic hit and, you know, we had tenants who had already signed at the stomping grounds, which is the green space project. Um, we immediately got into talks with them and they're like, okay, what do we do if, you know, we have to social distance and we can't be inside. And well, we've got an 8,000 square foot green space that we had our architect who designed the space go over there and essentially do a layout of tables six feet apart and how much we could fit them out on the lawn. Obviously throw some umbrellas up and you've got some shade too. Um, so yeah, I think that the patio space, the green space specifically for the stomping grounds, um, the other thing is it allows you to take a smaller indoor space, which clearly affects your economics and your rent, you know, with increasing property taxes, which is a, a large part of the triple nets, you know, the cam, the common area maintenance and the, the, the triple nets, which include the taxes and the maintenance. Um, you know, a lot of the rising rent has to do with that. And if you're able to take that smaller space, again, using the commissary that's upstairs in a high building, using patio space or shared green space for your for your patrons to be on and not happen to be in this you know interior space that's retail rent use it for your kitchen use it for your kitchen and your bathroom and to order and you know allow your patrons outside it's where they want to be you know you said you've, you've signed a couple leases uh in the last few months i mean you know i think your maybe your highest profile one is that you're bringing lauro uh the uh the barbecue concept from the owners of Uchi and Franklin barbecue to 11th street to that, that church property. Um, right. Do you have other things that you can talk about or, or, or maybe things we can, uh, we can look forward to. We actually, I know you're surprised. I signed a bike shop in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> I think about that, that's you know. all wants right, now, right. As a bike shop, you know, you know, you liquor stores that and PlayStation and fives. You can't sell them fast enough. <laughs> that's right. 
Yeah, we did. Uh, we signed a lease for a, to bring a bike shop to Oak Forest Garden Oaks, which um, obviously is, is, again, something that we don't really have a lot of over here. But during the pandemic, we had that beautiful weather that we had in the spring. Um, we've mainly been talking about restaurants. Obviously, we do some retail as well. We signed a, um, a uh, women's boutique called Her and Reese, which has uh, historically been an online store and who's uh, really seen some success over the past year. So she's going to be joining us at the Stomping Grounds. Um, so that's exciting. I'm trying to think what else restaurant wise uh, that we can talk about, you know, when we sign these leases and you know this, Eric, I'm with a great friendship. Um, I'm always chomping at the bit <laughs> to text you as soon as we sign a lease. And unfortunately, we're usually, um, you know, held hostage by the operator, whether it's, you know, they're finishing phasing, raising funds or they're getting all their, uh, you know, marketing materials together. But um, we work really closely with our restaurants through that, you know, through that media experience and getting the word out the best we can. I mean, our 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 uh, neighbors are really the ones who are beating my door down. You know, they see things being built. You know, especially with the bearded baker over there. You know, he won. I think he what he was on the what was he second on second place um, in a uh, second food place. network uh, Christmas right. cookie contest. So he and that was last. God, I think that aired last December. And, um, right. you know, he was really itching to be able to announce his signing by the time he had his, uh, his episode air, you know, just really kind of take advantage of that opportunity to be online. So, you know, we worked with him on that and, um, yeah, Laura was a big one. You know, I think that, you know, I had kind of hit it around to you that we were working on that deal and man, it, it felt like it took forever, but, uh, we were really excited when we were able to, to announce they were coming to the Heights. Well, and then, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of hopping around here. I didn't mean to, but, uh, you know, you talked about some of the things you did for your tenants. I mean, I know like you, you referred, uh, you referred Alan, the bearded baker to Jonathan Horowitz to, as a consultant to kind of get him off the ground. I know Jonathan's also working with Mikos and you facilitated that introduction. I mean, you know, it's, it's nice. You know, I think we sometimes have this vision of, uh, you know, the landlord is this kind of cruel and unfeeling. Uh, <laughs> sitting on a pile of cash. <laughs> right, sitting on a pile of cash. But but you're really invested in in helping these tenants be successful, right? You Because, I mean, frankly, I mean, if these places close, it, it could be a while before you are able to find someone, even in a desirable location, who yeah, absolutely. can take it I over. Mean, we have a little bit of a different, you know, business model than a lot of, you know, developers, inner city, you know, a lot of our um, colleagues you know, they'll develop high volume um, and with the intention of, you know, flipping a spot or, or selling it to an investment group, uh, which is fine. Um, and they do some beautiful work. You know, our our strategy has always been to kind of hang on to projects and, and really see what's worked. Um, we put a lot of thought into the amenities that we add into our projects, you know, be it an 8,000 square foot green space or, you know, rehabbing a, an old building to look modern with a modern storefront. Um, we really feel like these decisions aren't always architectural decisions. They're, they're usually based on, you know, the sales per square feet our tenant can get, you know, I mean, our biggest success is our tenants price per square, uh, rent per, I mean, I'm sorry, um, sales per square foot, you know, if they can, if, if the perception of, you know, 250 parking spaces and, and a large center, um, can help drive, you know, sales to that tenant, we're going to continue to do that. And the only way you can see that is if you're hanging around managing the pro the, the project. So, you know, we tend to, 
hang on to things for that sole purpose, you know, to, to see if our investment has positively affected, you know, our tenants. We are, like you said, I mean, we're partners with our tenants. Um, you know, we always tell them, come to us, you know, if it's something you're struggling with or something you need help with, please come to us. Don't come to us six months later and say, <laughs> you know, I'm out. Um, and I think we've we've kind of trained them well to, to do that. I and mean, you mentioned Jonathan Horowitz. Um, we were, you know, dealing with Jonathan. I've known Jonathan for years, but we were dealing with him on, you know, his former company that he was the CEO of um, uh, was opening some restaurants and we were dealing with him on a lease and just got to know him. And he, he departed that company and then, you know, went on his own. And we just really had such a great time getting to know him through that lease process that once our tenants you know, we're coming to open or like at an Allen's case with the beer to baker, um, first time business owner, um, first time brick and mortar, you know, we called Jonathan in to meet with Alan and really consult him on and everything from, you know, hiring a new manager to, you know, pricing his cookies, you know, so those are things that, you know, we do bring partners in, we bring, um, we share our resources with our tenants. So, you know, there's, there's a lady by the name of Lisa Brown that, you know, if you built a restaurant in the past five years, you probably know Lisa, she's the city code girl. She used to run the code department downtown. Um, she's a strategic partner of ours that, you know, we bring her in to review all of our um, tenants plans before they submit them to the city because doing that small step, you know, whatever it is, a couple hundred bucks that, you know, the landlord invests into that review, we have seen that just tenfold, you know, increase the, or decrease the time that, you know, they're going through the city. So just things like that, you know, we'll, we'll refer GCs, we'll refer electricians, um, we'll give you our roof guy. And like you said, I mean, those things, those investments that we make up front for our tenants, you know, they pay off in the long term. And and obviously, you know, we like to see our tenants succeed. Turnover is not an easy thing to see. And, you know, I, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, over the past year, we haven't lost any, any tenants um, during the pandemic. I know it's been a really rough year for a lot of people. And I do believe it's because we are in these neighborhoods and these neighbors are supporting these neighborhood restaurants. You know, of course, people sales are down. Um, you know, and I feel like very lucky that we're in the position we're in, especially with this, you know, large green space project in Garden Oaks, um, that people have the ability to, to spread out and be outside if they so choose to. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to say that that brings me to the end of my questions. We, uh, I mean, as you said, we are, we are friends. We talk on a pretty regular basis and, and I've always said with this podcast, I like, I want to bring my sort of offline conversations into a, into a forum that people could, uh, people could sort of benefit from some of the knowledge that I, that I get. So I, I hope people have found this productive. I hope Um, so too. I feel like I could talk to you for, you know, for an hour about this kind of stuff. Yeah. But we are, we are running out of time, but (laughs) since you listen to the show, you know how this ends. I do. We have to play the lightning round. Okay. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Monica Dana, what is your favorite cookbook? Oh, man. Uh, the Defined Dish, which is a, an Instagram uh, personality. She's from Dallas, and I love her. Perfect. All right. Who was the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh, God, do I have to admit this? It's probably uh, New Kids on the Block. <laughs> <laughs> what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Whataburger. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh man, I, I got to say Charles Barkley. I interviewed him in uh, as a high school senior for our newspaper team, and man, we had a good time. Charles Barkley. All right, and then finally, when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Pepperoni and sausage. 
Awesome. All right, Monica, give us the the website for Revive Development and the Instagram and how people can can keep up with all the the properties you guys have going yeah, on. Yeah, you bet. On Instagram, we're Revive Dev D E V, and online is reviveco.com. Awesome. All right, Monica, thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.